This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, radio therapists. It is exactly... 10 minutes, 10.03, three minutes past 10, and you're listening to 3RRR, and this is Radiotherapy. Big thank you to Marinara for another excellent show. Now, I am Dr Doolittle, and we have quite a bit to discuss this morning. Today, in the studio, we are joined by two guests. First up, you'll hear from Stefan Skov. Stefan is a music therapist and a musician who works with people suffering cancer. He's going to tell us about his profession and the various ways he uses music to help people. Also in the studio this morning is Catherine Lorenz. Catherine is the, get this, long, long title, so take a big breath. Catherine is the Executive Director of Corporate Services and Governance and Chief Lawyer at Monash Health. Pretty impressive. Catherine is here to celebrate Law Week. You all thought I was going to say the Royal Wedding. Law Week. It was Law Week this, this week. And with that in mind, she's going to discuss a very controversial case, that of Dr. Bawa Garba in the UK. Um, Dr. Bawa Garba is a doctor who was charged with manslaughter and banned from practising medicine for life after she helped care for a six-year-old boy who subsequently died. The catch was that the child's death was found to be due to multiple factors and multiple clinicians. So why did all the blame fall on just a few of the clinicians involved? In terms of panellists... Essentially, we've been deserted. Both Dr Capri and Dr Trainerwield have pulled sickies and they've basically left just myself and trusty panel beater to do the tasks. But we are going to do our very best in their absence. But before we do anything, let's begin with the news. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case loving you. Okay, and we're back. Time to take a time to say g'day to everyone. First panel beater, how are you, man? Top of the morning to you, Doctor Doolittle. Oh, you look like you've been working hard. Oh, you know, get caught up in royal wedding fever, did you? Uh, I got caught up in um, in uh, Collingwood fever, and then I planned on getting caught up in FA Cup final fever, but then I fell asleep and woke up this morning to that, see the result in the news. That was my ambition as well. Didn't and let's make, let's say a big g'day to our guest, Catherine Lorenz. G'day, Catherine. Good morning, Dr. Doolittle. Is this your first time in the Triple R studios? Because we've done lots of things together before related to law and medicine. It is. It's very impressive setup here. Well, welcome aboard. Thank you. And Stefan, g'day Good over morning. there. Good morning. Stefan's, um, people who can't see Stefan, which is everyone except the three of us, um, won't know that Stefan has his headphones on slightly funny, but he's a music therapist and Stefan and I actually work together in the same That's hospital. Right. Yeah. And so we see each other all the time and yeah. you've always got headphones around your neck. That is true. You are a headphone guy. That is true. Yeah. I can learn songs on the fly and that's why I'm wearing them. I love it. I love it. Well, welcome aboard to you too, <laughs> Thank Stephen. you very much. This is your first time at Triple R also, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. So let me explain what happens when, we, uh, when you're on radiotherapy. We always kick off with the news. So the first bit is we're going to talk about some stuff that's been in the news. Then we're going to come after that and interview each of you in turn. But uh, in terms of news, I think the uh, old panel beater's got something for us. A couple of things caught my eye during the week. You'll be able to. One a little serious, one a little bit more frivolous. The serious one... Sounds like right down <laughs> radiotherapy. Yeah, there we go. Um, look, some time back um, uh, we had a segment on the show regarding the Ebola breakout um, in West Africa um, and we thought we'd dealt with that. It was a shambles at the time. 
if you recall. Um, was this like back in the last outbreak? <laughs> yeah, so, the last you know, outbreak. A few years ago, yep. 2014, I think. 11,000 people died. Yeah. 11,000. Um, and there was lots of backlash against the World Health Organization for being, you know, twiddling their thumbs and, and other agencies and so on. And But anyway, the upshot was that we thought we got rid of it um, and it appears that that may not be the case. So there have been 17 new cases in um, just recently in the Congo um, and three more just last week and one more death. And it's only a, you're about 50, 60 kilometres, if I've got this right, um, outside of Kinshasa in DRC, the public, um, uh, Congo. Um, so the World Health Organisation partially, perhaps a lot, because of the previous backlash, is now being super cautious and um, have uh, issued some warnings. They haven't yet got to a global health warning, but it's on the horizon potentially. They've upgraded the warning from whatever it was. Yeah. I mean, because a, a case hit um, the city with a million people last night, yesterday. Oh, yesterday. So I was picking this up from Friday. So oh, if, no. if, if oh, it's, it's happening that fast. Oh, yeah. in the last um, 24 hours, it's been right. upgraded because um, whatever the big nearby city is, it has 1.2 million people. I'm sorry, I didn't. I, I don't know the name no. of it. Um, had a, it's has had, I think now. Th- one, either one, two, or three confirmed cases, yeah, right. and so now, um, you know, now full steam ahead. Everything's happening, and yep. uh, and uh, they're going full on. And in fact, the other like amazing thing about it is that they're using on a widespread scale the vaccine for the first time. That's right. They've tried. They've got this new vaccine, this whiz bang bang vaccine that they think will do the trick. Um, but there are already reports of because of where they're needing to do the treatments, um, issues with refrigeration. Yeah. So we'll see how that folds. Unfolds. I think it's really fascinating. I, I, these things are amazing. I mean, Ebola strike. You know, even the last one, which, as you say, was a shambles and caused lots of fuss around the world. Eleven thousand people in the overall scheme of things. I would have thought it's not a bad outcome, given some of their cities have millions of people and um, their health services well, are pretty poor. Yeah. And because essentially Ebola is a virus that causes all sorts of nasty things, including internal and external bleeding, and there's no real treatment for it. So most of the treatment for Ebola is essentially support, um, fluids and isolation. Um, finding all the people who are exposed, putting them in isolation, I, um, protecting the healthcare workers with all sorts of fancy gear so that they, you know, don't um, get exposed to the virus. Yeah. And then uh, and then waiting for it to pass. And, uh, and you know, around, it's got quite a high death rate as a virus. I think somewhere between, I don't yeah. know, it depends on the outbreak. Really high. Between about 30 and 90% of people mm. die. From Something it. like that, yeah. And so this virus is big news. They've never had a virus. So all the treatment in the past is, is isolate the people, is find out, quickly who's got it, isolate them um, and try and prevent the spread. And this time they're going to, you know, fly in there with this virus that's only been tested in small um, levels so far. Like it's had all its human testing and it's been used once in a tiny outbreak somewhere or other in an African country. Yeah. And so this is its first time. They're flying like seven, 8,000 um, lots of it in and <laughs> they're using it to try and ring... They're calling it sort of ring vaccination, I think. Uh-huh. And what they mean is they find the people who have had it and then they find everyone they know and have spoken to in the last couple of weeks and vaccinate all of them. And then once they've done all that, then they get all the people who they've vaccinated and try and put a ring around them. So who did you speak to? And the idea is to try and get this vaccine into them, even that, well, after they've been exposed, potentially, and try and treat it that way. It's pretty interesting stuff. Good stuff. Mm. Do you think they're doing a good job? You're the, our world health expert. <laughs> I always ask this. I, um, Dr. Panelbeer, this is his area. Um, Global health. I, uh, look, I guess we've got to be optimistic this time around given the, the, the swift reaction. 
Um, yeah, mm. we often have this argument, and I think it's going to come up later when we talk, Catherine, about um, Dr. Bawa Gaba. You know, what's getting the response proportional to the event? Mm. Don't do enough. You get abused from here on in. Do too much, everyone says you're overreacting. Of course, every treatment has side effects. Yeah. So do too much, no matter what it, in the intervention is, and it has consequences. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be fascinating. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. Fingers crossed. So what's your lighthearted? Oh, the frivolous one. Well, not so frivolous. You know, I don't know about you guys, but when I'm lying awake trying to get to sleep, I know what's usually the cause, and it's wondering why we haven't solved the answer to the question, what causes knuckles to crack and pop? Mm. And um, apparently, I this had been resolved. No? Well, I thought so too. So I, 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 I then looked into it, and there was because it caught, came up on the radar during the week. Um, apparently, people have been looking at this question for about sixty years. Can you believe it? Really? Yeah. So we're the first little attempts <laughs> at it. People um, say medical science is yeah, frivolous right. and wasteful. At times. Um, but um, and, and the initial thoughts were some kind of vibration um, or some kind of um, fibrous snap. Um, was the main reason. Then that was the early thinking, and then there was the opportunity to put knuckles and getting them cracked under MRI, and so that started to reveal the, this idea of the bubble in the in the joints, mm. and that when the bubble popped, that's the sound we hear when we 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 crack. So a bubble of fluid, obviously. Yeah, not, a not bubble air. of fluid, right? Yeah. And that sounded pretty good. And then, um, but this latest report is on the back of um, of, a, of a piece of research that says. Um, that the bubbles only partial, partially pop and um, that that explains why you can actually crack your knuckles pretty quickly afterwards. Otherwise, it would be, you know, do it once and you're done. Yep. Um, but it also um, almost certainly confirms that you don't get arthritis from cracking knuckles, which was the big was a thing on a lot of people's minds, you know, will I get arthritis? And I've been a knuckle cracker in the past, so I'm glad to have that resolved. But, yeah, um, sorry, but uh, you know, to the extent that this is not frivolous, the, um, the researchers have claimed that the real benefit here is it tells us what we should be looking for when we want to know how good joints work. And so if, um, if everything's in working order, you should actually be able to crack and pop and do your thing. But you don't need to, of course. There's you no, don't need I've to. I've never bothered doing There's it. There's no benefit Masseurs from it. Masseurs often do it. Thai ones always do it. They go and insist on... I don't like it, actually. I always... You know, I'm, you know, in, when you're getting a massage, you're always too chilled out to argue. So I never quite say, no, don't crack my <laughs> yeah. knuckles. You know, I like to just go along and be a good, compliant um, patient. Um, but I, I, it annoys me. Oh, it, it, I, I can remember seeing a kid in about year 10 do it and I thought, oh, that's pretty cool. I'm going to try this. So I just walked around lunchtime just trying to crack my knuckles. And then it just became a, a, a thing. And um, and uh, it's actually taken me... I've had to be really conscious not to do it. So and you did, did it, done it your whole life? Well, since about, year, since about halfway through year 10. Because you know, though, <laughs> there was a... Um, you know, about a decade ago now, a guy got um, an Ig Nobel Prize. They're the, you know, awards for... Um, how did they put it there for... Um, Studying things that are basically amusing but then make you think. Yep. And they're often for, you know, quite silly sort of frivolous stuff. And he got an Ig Nobel Prize because for 50 years or 30 years he cracked the knuckles on one hand, maybe <laughs> whatever, just the left hand, and cracked them. And he was a doctor <laughs> and he did it and purposely didn't crack them on the other and he did it multiple times a day. He's obviously slightly... Um, on the obsessive compulsive spectrum. Um, he did it for, I think it was either 30 or 50 years. I can't remember. You can look it up. Come, put in the knuckle experiment. It comes up all over the internet. And then wrote a report that I think got published
published in a big medical journal as a letter. I think it might have even been The Lancet. Um, and he did, you know, full investigations of both knuckles in both hands with x-rays and everything else to see whether they had, in, had any different levels of arthritis. And he had none. There no arthritis in either hand. And so that was sort of like... Um, you know, that you can crack your knuckles all you like. Mm. Now, one one side effect I think I have found, it was great to hear there's no arthritis, but I play a bit of guitar and when um, when I might do a, a couple of, um, couple of you know, mini bar chords when you use just like the top joint of your fourth finger, um, it's getting very weak and I think that's got something to do with it. I reckon it's, uh, I reckon we're going to call that uh, imagination. <laughs> Placebo. <Thank> because I... <laughs> Placebo. Yeah, no. Whatever. Um, anyway, you're listening to... That's, is that it for our Yes. Yep. Beauty. Good for me. Now, let me tell you about Stefan. Stefan is a Denmark-born singer-songwriter producer who recently moved to Melbourne. He's completed a five-year's master's degree in music therapy. I'm going to pronounce this wrong. At Alborg University in Denmark. Alborg. Oh, thank you, Stefan. <laughs> as well as four years singer-teacher education with specialisation in solo performance, singing techniques and voice rehabilitation in Copenhagen, Denmark. He's currently working as a senior music therapist in my neck of the woods, Peter McCallum Cancer Centre, where he employs music as a powerful tool of transformative therapy for palliative care patients in their final days and in oncology patients, um, helping them cope with their various treatments. Is that a fair description, Stefan? I think that's a beautiful description. Good to see you here. Yeah, thank you. Good to see you too. Yeah, so I invited Stefan along today because I've seen <laughs> Stefan's work around Peter Mac many times and had many people tell me how... Um, how beneficial it's been to, to them. And, uh, in fact, even I was just telling Stefan, someone nice. put a, a nice yeah. comment on our Facebook page saying uh, that they've seen you as a patient and, uh, you know, by the way, Radiotherapy on Triple R, our Facebook page. But, uh, Stefan, let's uh, get the ball rolling. Tell us about music therapy and how it's used as a clinical tool. Okay. To answer that question, I have to back up just a little bit because there are some truths hiding there that are kind of... Um, not always exposed and also it's a part of the world that i deal with when imagine this you're at the peter mac hospital you're not there for a vacation you're there because you're going through a horrible time like mm -hmm. no matter what you're going through an existential kind of shift in your life like you hadn't planned this and all of a sudden you don't know what the future holds whether it's the disease or the the illness then a guy called stefan rocks up music therapist or steph the other music therapist with a guitar and goes, hello, I'm the music therapist. Picture that. The first emotion you might get is, dude, that is so weird. What are you doing here? Because you are there to have, a, a, you, you're there to have your disease dealt with in a way and to help kind of, you need to focus on getting better, mm -hmm. not to be entertained. Yep. That's probably what people think. Plus there might be this bracket of, you might suck and make my day worse. <laughs> So I think that, <laughs> that's, that's facing through a lot of things that happen in hospital. That's true. You know, like, it's not that they're bad. It's no, that they it, do make, you know, yeah, 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 absolutely. A I lot totally of the things that happen to you suck. But, but here is what I like, because I contemplate a lot about this. And I think what I what I've reached a conclusion on is is kind of like it's so simple, but it's like mind blowing because it is music is ubiquitous. Music is everywhere. It's common. It's something that's been used through the history of humankind. Not many things have, and I think it has, like there are books that are trying to document this. Music they, and taxes, you know, yeah, yeah, always yeah. been there. But like, like, they found a flute in Germany that's like 40,000 years old, made from a swan's uh, wing bone. Wow. So 40,000 years of music, at least. A flute, flute is very advanced. 
So if you back up further, grunting together, singing, having some kind of choir, banging stuff. So it's something that's kept with us through the evolution, maybe to cope with existential fears and stuff like that already through whatever history we've, been, we've had as a human race. That leads to, in my opinion, this is a lot of speculation, but I see it in action all the time. That is, we cannot not respond to music. One. Two, everyone already have a relationship to music. I've never seen a patient where I could go, yeah, I'm, I know it's kind of weird to see, like if they're skeptical, yeah, I know it can look weird, but what kind of music do you like? And they'll go, well, yeah, Dean Martin, I like Dean Martin. Like everyone has a relationship to it already, whether it be active as in choosing music in their everyday life, their favorite music in the car on the way to work or on the way home after an in intense interview, they, they let it rip in the car seat, they just yell out on the way home. Like, people do that without thinking about the therapeutic value of it. True. Can I just say, is yeah. there anyone who doesn't like music? That's, you just struck that. I've never met anyone. But I'm no. Just, is there anyone who says, no, I don't like music, I don't listen to it? It's not possible, surely. Oh, because there's people who say I don't watch TV and there's people who say I don't, a lot of people yeah. say yeah. I don't read books. People, yeah, have, yeah. people have strong reactions to certain kinds of music they don't like. Yeah. yeah. But, but no music Everyone's at all. Everyone's got a favourite. Mm. But, but that's, again, I think that taps into my conclusion on, like, uh, it's called entrainment in music therapy language, but it's basically you cannot not respond to music, which is... It's not voluntary. You can lie in that bed, and if I play something that really goes against what you like in a way that you really not is ready for, then it will confront you and it will make you uncomfortable. And it will make if I if, if I'm not a comfortable performer on top of that, I will create a, a very intense emotional negative experience. But can I just check? Because on the thing is, as a clinical tool, clearly you can't see every patient at Pedimac. There's no. just too many. Yeah. So. Which ones do you get to see? So why do, why does some get referred cool. to and others don't? Yeah, sorry, I never really got back to answering the question of why music music as a tool at the hospital. But what I, what we look for, we have some indicators. So if someone is, um, I'll back up one sec. Uh, like the hospital is set up to de deal with, as I see it, uh, the physical side of things mostly. Yeah. Right? Primary so, goal is to fix the cancer. That's right. But very little structure is really set up around the patient that comes in with that disease and the existential fears that they experience to the extent where we can actually reach in and support them in that. I'd love to see studies and do studies that uh, investigates the link between how they experience, like their quality of life is, mm -hmm. and how the medicine works on them, like painkillers and stuff like that. But now I'm just going on a rant here. What I'm, so we, we look for indicators such as um, uh, emotional low, uh, depression, yep. uh, isolation, mm -hmm. uh, not coping well, uh, but even physical symptoms because music, because you cannot not respond to music, we can use music as a physical uh, way of treating pain because there are emotional aspects of pain as well mm -hmm. uh, and even psychological aspects of pain. Why I've played for patients, for example, that were in agonizing pain and for some reason the pain medication didn't work the way they wanted in palliative care. And because they'd already had a good, strong relationship to music, I could sit down at their bedside and play the music the way that they wanted it, and then they would be falling asleep within two or three songs. Can you give me an example of a patient that you have or have treated previously and how that therapeutic relationship has worked? Um, yeah. So, like, so I see patients that are from early diagnosis mm -hmm. to to through to like 
uh, hopefully the treatments work and they, they don't have to come back to the hospital after their cycles of chemo or their radiotherapy or whatever treatment they're coming through. But sometimes I follow them through through um, palliation as well and play for them as they're dying and the families around Do you the teach them to play? Uh, well, at, at the stage of, of palliation, well, if they want to, as a part of legacy, yeah, I do. Um, usually, uh, instrument teaching is for for patients that are in for cycles of chemotherapy and want a positive way. Well, one, I can facilitate them expressing themselves and their emotions with their families if they have kids and stuff like that. But I can also give them skills so that they, when they leave the hospital, feel like they got something positive out of it, and also kind of to tip that kind of, I always wanted to learn guitar, but now, yeah, I've got all this time. And yeah, and does, does that answer the question? I feel like I'm just rambling all over the place. So <laughs> I know with kids, but, um, hospitals often use play therapists to, as tools of distraction yeah, and yeah. that kind of thing. Do you do that during uh, treatments as well? So kind of music for distraction to, during a particular- The procedural support. Procedural yeah, support. yeah, absolutely. So, um, that is a part of the, the service that we provide with the children who are coming in for radio, radiotherapy uh, from children's and from other hospitals. They will come in and then I, the other music therapist, Steph, who's working at the hospital, she will be uh, helping the setting up the, the minds and the framework of the whole experience with music. So allowing them either to create playlists that they listen to while undergoing uh, radiotherapy or live music before so they're kind of in a, in a, in a more positive frame of mind when they're then uh, given the anaesthetics. Stefan, I'm listening to you talk and I'm keeping trying, making sure I'm reminding myself that you're talking about work within a um, within an environment that's you know pretty traumatic for a lot of people, stressful, Highly, yeah, a lot yeah. of anxiety. Yeah. And then I'm um, associating with how I use music in my life. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And I keep returning to this um, age-old question that people ask themselves and others. Do you listen to music to reinforce your frame of mind or do you use music to change your frame of mind or a combination of both. Yeah. Is, it, is it as simple as that for the therapy side of things? Yeah, it is. And uh, my answer is yes. Like you do both really. So um, um, let me see. Um, sometimes I will step into a, 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 a room where a patient is having a lot of complications and they're not very comfortable. So in that, like if they have a tendency of low mood, I would step in with the intention to soothe them, meet their need, they'll express their need. I'll find out what kind of music they like and I'll sit down, I'll meet them, listen to where they are and then I'll play the music as a way to shift the mood if that's what they want. Like if, if they struggle with low mood, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of assuming as a, as, a, as a music therapist that they don't want to be stuck in that low mood. So I'll play something to lighten their mood. And then it's this kind of interaction where I try to read, like as I'm playing the song, I can, I can modulate. If I, if I strum the guitar, I will tend to lighten the mood. If I, if I pick the guitar, it gets softer and more emotional. Not all people are comfortable being emotional, so it's very—it's a very, very fine kind of uh, interaction between patient and music therapist. Just as a follow-up to that, how how do you respond then? Like, there's plenty of times where I'll listen to what is quite frankly um, morose or dark music because that's where I want to be for that yeah. period of time. Yeah. If a patient is responding with that 
desire yeah. uh, and request. Where do you fit in there? I think it's I, I think it's highly appropriate, and if, especially if they address like if they say it themselves that they like they like Radiohead or they like something <laughs> that really goes into to a darker like both lyrically lyrics tend to get sharp in in a, in a clinical setting because all of a sudden words mean so much more. So um, if they can express the need so specifically like you just did. I would embrace it because that's also a way for you to deal with the darker aspects of what you're feeling about this situation. And quite often what it leads to is tears. Like I, I played for uh, um, um, a man. Um, um, this was the first session I came into the room. I had a referral. Um, not coping well was the indicator. He was he was struggling. He had a tendency to low uh, mood. I came into the room. He was in his bed. He had just been diagnosed. He was He was about to go into um, treatment and he was not coping well he was very tense in his bed he was holding on he was not emotional in any way but you could see he was struggling in his eyes and his wife was sitting next to him and that's the whole thing music can incorporate a whole environment as well like family even staff if something is very stressful so um I looked at him and I asked like I introduced music therapy for starters and then I said so what kind of music do you like uh, and the wife said, can you please play something soothing? So I played Kathy's song uh, by Simon and Garfunkel. Mm-hmm. And the first thing that happened was that he let go of his hands and then all of a sudden he burst out crying deeply, like really deeply. And I kept playing the song to reinforce and kind of allow that to happen and checking out if, with him and the wife if they were comfortable with this kind of continuing like this. And the wife signaled to me, please keep going. Mm-hmm. As she climbed into bed and kind of held around him and just really mm. let him cry in her arms and I kept playing like, oh. you know the, just as that's so emotional yeah. um, when you first came to um, Peter Mac I, I remember I introduced you to um, the team yeah and there was about 20 people sitting around and most people when you introduce them to the team we've got a new person working here their name's such and such they say oh hi I'm so nice to meet you all instead Stefan pulled out his guitar and played a song for us all now I didn't know where to look because you know and just remind yeah, you know yeah, when yeah, you yeah. talked about the transformative nature and gave that example yeah. you know just in that you know it was just it was on the it was initially awkward yeah and then it was really warm and it, it, tr- it transformed the room and everyone immediately knew what you did and yeah. you know it was a real picture Tells a thousand words. Anyway, um, oh, I just want to remind everyone, you listen to Radiotherapy. We've got um, doc, uh, panel beta, myself, Dr. Doolittle, our two guests, Catherine Lorenz, lawyer from Monash, who we're going to talk to next, and we're currently speaking with Stefan Skov, music yeah. therapist at Peter Mac. How can people in everyday life use music to help with their coping, with, their, you know, the dealing with the world around us? Good question. And, and actually, I think it's just an act of, of conscious decisiveness. So, so like, do choosing because you're exposed to it all the time. Look at MasterChef. You're feeling stressed because they're cutting onions? No, you're feeling stressed because they edit quickly, but also the music is like Lord of the Rings behind it. They stress mm. you with music. At, at calls, they use music to keep you or to make you go. At discos, they make you dance or they shut it down because now they put on this slow song that everyone just go, ah, let's go home. Like music is used already. And people use music already. You put it on when it's quiet, funerals. Like it's, it's infused in all aspects of our society. Uh, to happy birthday. What would a happy birthday be, be like without? Like happy birthday. It would be like happy birthday. 
Like, it would be a very quiet thing. So we have it as a way to engage, to bind us together, and to also use the emotions that, that come with it and be manipulated in movies and stuff like that. So the question is, how can you then use music therapy on your own life? Well, choose. If you're aware of how you feel, if you're aware of what music does to you, because it's highly individual, you might find that Radiohead is the most soothing when you're having a low day and you feel embraced by that. And some people will find that is just too much. It's too intense. They want to hear Jack Johnson or they want to hear something like uh, Vivaldi's uh, Four Seasons. Abba. Abba. That's right. So what did they choose at the Royal Wedding? So, <laughs> so if you as a listener feel like if you have someone uh, who's at home and they're sick and they're constantly lying down and stuff like that, be aware of what kind of music you put on. Like, think about what kind of music they like, for starters. Like, if, if they only like classical music, ABBA would be a highly confronting kind of thing that will poke in their ears. But so if you know what, the, what kind of music they like, then go into, like, how does the music feel? Like, because everyone really knows. Like, that's what I step into when I step into the hospital. Everyone really knows how they feel when they listen to it. They, they know what they like and don't like as soon as they experience it. What about music you don't like, Stefan? How hard is it to go to work sometimes and talk to patients who might want you to be involved in music choices that you really find confronting? Does that ever happen to you? Do you no. like all music? No, never, ever, ever. Yeah. Because um, I, I think when I started out, I, I was kind of humbled by the power of... Of, of songs like I always I, I kind of joked around with like opera someone said opera and I would always be, always be like awesome, like joking but then I've had some people request that song and all of a sudden it turns into like and we can change gears next up we're going to chat to Catherine Lorenz about a legal issue because it is actually Law Week. We're just at the end of Law Week and there's been all sorts of activities all over Melbourne to celebrate Law Week. Let me tell you about Catherine first. Catherine is the Executive Director of Corporate Services and Governance and the Chief Legal Officer at Monash Health. Monash Health, you may recall, is the largest hospital in Victoria. Prior to coming to Monash, Catherine was Executive Director of Legal and Information Services at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, and she also has a long track record working in the commercial sector and for major listed companies. In particular, Catherine possesses extensive experience in complex commercial litigation matters, regulation, commercial advisory, strategy and enterprise prize-wide strategic execution. She's probably a lot better at reading out these long names than I am. Governance, compliance and risk. G'day again, Catherine, even though we've been chatting for the last 40 minutes. Hello, Dr. Doolittle. Now, we're going to talk about... I might summarise the Dr. Bawagaba case first up because we want to talk about that a little bit, talk about um, how we deal with medical errors. Can they be done better? Where, where is the best place? The courts, the coroners, the medical board, etc. So uh, let me tell you the nuts and bolts. I think a lot of you will have read this case. It revolves around a six-year-old boy who presented to a hospital in the UK with diarrhoea and vomiting and looked very unwell. To make matters worse, he had a congenital heart problem and was on medications for his heart. Over the course of the day, a series of problems unfolded. He initially improved with some fluids, but then deteriorated again. Again, the deterioration was picked up. He was diagnosed with pneumonia, but it took longer than normal as there was delay getting the x-rays and reading the x-rays. There was also a delay in um, the time it took to get his antibiotics, and there was a whole lot of delays in the time it took to get the blood results because the IT systems were down on the day. And to make matters worse, they were short-staffed. The doctor involved was covering at various times between um, one other person 
person who was away on leave and other people on multiple wards over multiple floors and taking external calls. Um, some of the tests that came in should have raised big alarms. For example, the medicos out there, the pH was 7.08. The baby was very sick with um, septic shock. Um, it didn't raise nearly big as an alarms as they should have and the consultant didn't see the patient. Then in the evening, the baby, the child, wasn't a baby, the six-year-old boy, was given his heart medication, which he shouldn't have been given because it was contraindicated in the, um, with this illness and the doctor had stopped it, but the mum didn't know and she gave the baby, the, medic, the child, the medication. And then finally, when the um, child did have a cardiac arrest, the resuscitation was initially stopped for a minute or so after he, the child was mistaken for another child who had a do not resuscitate order, although that wasn't believed to have contributed. So in essence, this was one of those cases where everything almost that could go wrong did go wrong. And basically, this poor six-year-old child died largely because of hospital errors, and no one denies that. But there were lots of factors involved. Four clinicians made mistakes, the IT system was down, the X-ray was delayed, the mother gave meds, the hospital was short-staffed, and the doctor, who was the primary doctor who got in trouble over the whole thing, was just returning from 14 months maternity leave, and it was her first shift in charge at a new hospital in this particular ward. And the registrar was found guilty of manslaughter and was given a two-year suspended sentence and disbarred for one year from medical practice that then on appeal was changed to life and the agency nurse, so the fill-in nurse who was the primary nurse, pretty much got the same punishment. Medical manslaughter, two-year suspended sentence, disbarred for life. Another nurse was punished. The consultant who didn't act on the um, blood results and didn't see the child uh, didn't, um, wasn't found to have contributed. So that's it in a nutshell. Catherine, why don't you kick, kick us off with telling us what is medical manslaughter that this doctor and the nurse got charged with? So medical manslaughter in a broad sense is essentially um, causing the death uh, of, of a person. So manslaughter requires death. It doesn't yep. have to have intention because we know with murder you have to intend to kill somebody. But in the medical context, it's essentially a branch of negligence where the negligence of the accused person is so bad that the um, prosecution steps in and says essentially this should be addressed by the criminal system and a criminal charge um, can be laid against the p uh, person who is alleged to have um, breached their duty of care to the patient. Right, so so bad that it's criminally negligent. Has it ever happened in Australia? Yes, uh, it's very rare. There's been four or five cases. The most famous, of course, was the Dr Patel case in Bundaberg, the surgeon who allegedly... Um, uh, uh, caused the death of a number of people. He was actually, um, his sentence was overturned on appeal, went, went all the way to the High Court and he was let out of prison after two years. Um, there's been a few other cases. Um, the, the most famous case in Victoria that was almost a manslaughter case, but not, and I'll explain why, involved a, an anaesthetist a few years ago who injected himself with... Um, doses of fentanyl which and he used the same needle then to inject his patients with fentanyl um, 47 of those patients ended up with hepatitis c diagnoses this now, is the this is public record so i can say his name can't i'm not going to get say his yeah, name this is the famous dr peters case dr dr james peters that's yep. right so dr james peters is now serving a 14 year sentence 10 year non-parole period um, and it's not manslaughter because the patients haven't died yet um no doubt um, some of them will die of their condition. So it, it's a very sad case. Um, and this was a fellow who was a drug addict. He was misusing... Although, just I should point out, that they all got hepatitis C, which 
course, in the last 10 years has totally changed and there's now sure. treatments available and with a bit of luck they'll all get cleared and nothing will One happen. One hopes. Yeah. Yeah, but I see what you mean. Has potential to kill. Potential to kill. Uh, and he was a drug addict. He he knew what he was doing. He had previous convictions for um, misuse of prescription pads and all sorts of things. He was in the um, frame of the medical board. Who of, he had some restrictions placed on his um, ability to practice medicine. Um, so he was it was a disaster waiting to happen essentially. So that's kind of gives you an illustration of how serious it needs to be in Victoria before the prosecution will look at doctors who inevitably make mistakes. And I think the sad thing about the Bawagaba case is, as you said before, unravelling or somehow unpicking what were essentially system errors, which are hospital-based errors, um, not caused by any one person, and then uh, sort of separating out where there may have been quite serious negligence by the individuals, or was there not? So why do you think this case got such an attention and such a reaction? I think a few things. Um, one was the, um, the severity of, uh, the, of her registration. So there was less outcry about the manslaughter conviction than there was for um, her deregistration. There were also some other factors here. One was the, um, the fact that she, um, she was a, a black woman. She... Uh, she was seen to, um, you know, have been treated quite unfairly by particularly the medical profession. So essentially her manslaughter conviction was um, was really um, based on medical evidence, expert evidence given at trial. Uh, and I think there is a sense of genuine sense of fear for medical practitioners that they go to work, they don't intend to do a bad job, they don't intend to harm patients, but there's a fear that, you know, if you do make a mistake that you could end up, um, end up with criminal charges against you, which is, you know, obviously an unfortunate... You know, because that's the interesting thing. I think, you know, I don't know, certainly when I read it, and pretty much every doctor and nurse and clinician I know, when they looked at this case, said each one of those errors I've made at some stage, maybe not all in a row, maybe not... I don't know about... Some of them I looked at and I was... I mean, calling off the um, resuscitation one, I must admit, I looked at that and thought, oh, that's just not on. That's not... That's clearly negligent. I'm not getting the name right. You know, not triple-checking before you call. But anyway, look, by and large, though, most of those errors, I've worked in short-staff situations, I've covered people, I've missed um, deteriorations in patients, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And mostly, you know, there's safety net and there's people around you but when these errors go wrong it's always that they call it the Swiss cheese phenomena where all the holes in the cheese just happen to line up you know and this was one of those and so everyone's just horrified that it could end up so bad you know after just a day's work where you go and clearly you're put under pressure yet on the other hand a six-year-old child died because of errors and yes. the public has a complete and the family have a complete and understandable right to know. How do you find that balance? I think that's right. And I think the interesting question for me working in a hospital is what is the best way for the system to uh, address medical errors? Is it through the law? Is it through the coronial process? And sometimes that does uh, tend to uh, um, siphon out issues and um, assist with addressing problems in the system. Or is it is it the hospital themselves? And I think hospitals previously um, historically haven't been great at working out 
what where the problems lie and how they can improve some of the system's errors. So it's a real balance, though, isn't it? Because there's also the medical board, um, and there's right. also the health complaints commission. That's right. They're, they're, you know, and each one gets. Um, there's pros and cons. Like, obviously, doctors love criticising the law. Um, lots of people love criticising the medical board. They often think the medical board's too soft on doctors. Interestingly, this time in the UK, they're criticising the medical board for being too harsh yes. and giving a life ban, although initially it was one year, but then it was overturned and changed to life. Um, same with health complaints. It's hard. You know, I mean, we've got this complex web of, um, of processes, but it's hard to know which one to use at which stage. I'm trying to give myself a framework to think about um, how to how to consider this, and I'm so therefore looking for a compare contrast. It, what's striking me about this case is the um, motivation, legal and medical, to identify specific people as opposed to systems. So uh, you've pointed out the IT system was down, but that's essentially been marginalised in this in many ways. And what about the hospital, et cetera, et cetera, around their human resources management of doctors and so on, this kind of thing. So we've got this idea that we're looking for people or persons to blame. In contrast with the way that we're treating, say, the Banking Royal Commission, where no individual is being targeted in a legal sense. Yet. They will be, though. There will be uh, charges as a result. Anyway, sorry, keep I'm, going. I'm not so sure that there will be. And the GFC, well, I think nobody got criminally convicted out of that. Um, and so you've got this contrasting motivation and focus institutional focus in the case of banking, whether that be GFC or this current Royal Commission, or um, the case that, that we're talking about, which is motivated to find individuals and persons who are also operating with in systems um, and organisations, large organisations. And I wonder what explains that compare contrast. Is it simply because it's health and death? Uh, you know, and in, we can look at it that way. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure, the open question. I think that's such a great question, Dr. Panelbeta. I wonder if it's the emotive element of health and or is it the or is it just a resignation by our community that um, we expect the banking sector or the corporate sector to behave badly and we're resigned to it, we accept it and we really don't expect too much redress and maybe we should. But we're very happy to uh, sort of put in as many systems, as many checks and balances as we can in the health sector, as we should, for, for clear and obvious reasons. See, I quite like the... Um having that legal arm there. I know a lot of people get annoyed because they feel that the um, law is too coarse and that the judgments are too tough. Um, but uh, one of the reasons I like it is because I think sometimes you have to have that fear hanging over you because, you know, your ethics and professionalism alone don't protect you against big organisations that are understaffed. At some stage, you have to have these court, these cases ringing in your ears so that when you turn up to work and it is short-staffed, you scream to the rooftops and you don't comply with the system. You know, it's, it's basically the ethics of working in an unethical system. When the system's a bit broken, you know, so I like having the law there. And... Um, I think without it, you don't have... You know, I think that injects a little bit of fear into the system. Well, Do you think I, that's helpful or not? I'm not so sure that um, a sort of a fear-based approach does fix <laughs> systems issues, Steve, but I, I do think having lawyers around is, is very helpful in a hospital setting. I don't think fear-based, but I think you have to have an element. You know, you can't just rely on people's goodwill, otherwise when systems are broken and funds are down... Stefan, you had a question you wanted to ask. Yeah, Catherine, do you think the laws are strict enough? That's a... 
Interesting question, Stefan. At the moment, the Victorian government is contemplating a change to the open disclosure rules. So as you probably um, all know, there is a um, an obligation on doctors that when there is a, um, a mistake made or an adverse event, that they disclose that adverse event to the patient. Um, doctors, I think, are... Um, it, their response to that is variable and as a consequence of that the Victorian government is considering what's called a statutory duty of candour. Candour? Candour. Candour. I don't even know that word. It's a strange word. It's It follows the UK laws and I, I think arguably I, I wonder if we already have a duty of uh, um, open disclosure, I really wonder what this sort of stick approach... So this would this... make it the law that if a mistake occurred you had to tell the patient even if you thought there was no benefit or interest? No, you. it, it won't, no, not if there's no benefit or interest, but uh, what it will do is place the obligations on the hospital. So essentially the hospital itself will have the obligation of, standard, of, of the statutory duty of candour. So that's one uh, sort of element that is being brought in um, or considered at the moment by the parliament to improve patient safety. We've still got a lot of other patient safety stuff. We've got the whole, I've forgotten what they've called, but Stephen Duckett's in charge of it. Um, Safer Care Victoria. Right. So, and they're a new group as well, aren't they? They've only been around a couple of years. Yes. And um, that that's essentially to bring together the patient safety initiatives in the state. Um, I still think my personal view is that patient safety is um, best handled by um, the clinicians themselves and a commitment by the hospitals to standardise patient safety, including morbidity and mortality reviews, which at the moment are seem somewhat disparate around the state. And this comes out in coroner's in, um, findings often. The thing that cheers me up, though, is that there is so much effort going into it all. I mean, a lot of these cases in the last decade or two, compared to when I started my career, and, you know, that often something would happen and it'd be an investigation and you wouldn't hear anything more. Whereas now, you know, it's a hospital-wide level, at the unit level, there's laws addressing it, there's whole bodies like the Safer Care Victoria You've got the Health Complaints Commission that's also only about five or so years old, the medical board that's been there forever. Hey, we're going to wind this segment up, though, because it is time for us to say our thank yous and pass over to the geniuses at Einstein and GoGo. Um, thank you to Stefan Skov from Peter Mack coming in and talking about music therapy for us. That was fantastic. Thank you for having me on. And thank you, Catherine Lorenz from Monash Health, um, Senior Counsel there, telling us all about that case and celebrating Law Week with us. Thank you, Steve. And panel beta for coming in. I'm Dr Doolittle. You've been listening to Radiotherapy on Triple R. That's also the name of our Facebook page. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.